You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today we've got a pretty interesting episode with some friends from Northern Ireland and a friend from Canada, and we're going to talk about a paper that's just been published in Medical Education, and the title of this paper is Into the Uncanny Valley. Simulation versus Simulacrum, and that's just been published uh, this month in Medical Education. And the authors are Jenny Johnson, Jerry Gormley, uh, Gronya Kearney, and Helen Reed. And in fact, I'm joined by nearly all of them today. So I'm going to introduce them, and then we're going to get into the paper. And I'm just going to give a little trigger warning here, Simulcast listeners. This is a bit of a deep dive into theory, but it's one which is incredibly practical and will make us think about our simulation practice. So first up, we've got uh, Jenny Johnson, who's an academic GP and educationalist. How are you, Jenny? Uh, I'm good. Thank you very much for having us. I uh, appreciate the trigger warning there. <laughs> okay, <laughs> be mindful of that going forward. Excellent. Good. And uh, also one of the other authors, Helen Reed, who's a GP and also describes herself as a critical researcher. How are you, Helen? I'm very well. Thank you, Victoria, for having us um, having us with you. Excellent. Uh, and then next up, Jerry Gormley, who's actually been on Simulcast before. We've talked about some of his work there uh, previously. He's a GP and the Professor of Simulation at Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland. How are you, Jerry? I am doing really well. Thank you all considering, uh, Vic, and thank you for inviting us uh, to take part in uh, this podcast. Yes, my pleasure. And because we were doing a deep dive into theory and we were talking about things related to ethnography and anthropology, who else to get to be our discussant than Eve Purdy, another friend of Simulcast, uh, now qualified anthropologist and nearly fully qualified uh, emergency medicine consultant attending. How are you, Eve? I am uh, doing very well, thrilled to be on Civilcast again, and even more thrilled to be with a couple like-minded people. Aha, uh-huh. and the only person missing from this is uh, Gronya Kearney, who's an academic GP and institutional ethnographer, who is the other author on the paper. So Simulcast again, we're going to have a little bit of a struggle keeping up with the accents, but we'll see how we go. So uh, let's get into this paper. Now, I'm going to just give a little bit of an overview and then I'm going to ask uh, Jenny, who's the lead author, to tell us a bit more about it. But essentially, this the premise of this paper starts with saying simulation is good. And that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably believe in that. Uh, but it takes a little bit of a deeper dive and, dive and says it's not enough just to think this is good, but let's think a little bit about the theory that underpins this. And also, believe it or not, there's actually some uh, politics that might even be relevant. And perhaps most importantly, really thinking critically is important if we're to understand what might be some unintended consequences. So I'm going to quote from the paper now. We explore a key concept from postmodern theory, that of Baudrillard's simulacrum, and explore its relevance for the contemporary trend towards simulation education. And we use this theoretical approach both to sound a cautionary note regarding the progression of simulation-based education and to suggest future directions for pedagogy within this frame. All right, Jenny, that sounds like a uh, 
mouthful, but I have a feeling as I read through the paper, it got pretty practical. But tell us, why do you write a paper like this? I seem to have kind of made a career out of writing papers like this. Um, I guess myself and also Helen, uh, we do a lot of critical type research, meaning that we like to look at the status quo and see if we can try and make it a bit better. Um, so we, we're not very good at accepting things as they are. With Jerry, we had done a stream of work really looking at the kind of educational impact of OSCEs. Um, and then uh, when Derry took up his chair, um, and he's become very obviously involved in the simulation world, and, and this came to our attention. All of us are clinicians as well, uh, as you guys are, and so we feel quite strongly about the need to kind of always bring it back to patients and that patient-doctor relationship. Very relevant at the minute. Well, why don't you just continue that thought a little bit and explore some of the key concepts? Because there are, as I said, a couple of words that might be less familiar to simulcast listeners. Uh, And in fact, right early on, you say that this is sort of positioned within uh, contemporary approaches to education, including neoliberalism. What's What's the relevance of that? So... Neoliberalism is a really, really important concept in critical research because it really refers um, to the current ideology that's dominant in the world at present. And in terms of um, in terms of government and economics and also relevant in terms of social sciences. Um, and the basic idea is that it's all about letting things be dictated by free market force, forces. OK, so by commercialism. Um, also encompasses things like uh, reduction in regulation, a move from public sector to private sector. Um, and certainly in the UK, we would be very aware of that with the current coronavirus epidemic where it's been a little bit hands off. So even though uh, the idea of neoliberalism starts in economics, it really has expanded to cover all aspects um, of life. Um, and it's very present with us within the university sector at the moment with the idea of students as consumers um, and universities as, as really big corporations. Yeah, so I guess it pushes us to understand some of the things we're very aware of about the need for efficiency in our education, the idea about standardisation, I think, was some of the thoughts that I got uh, from the paper about the relevance of that. So if we sort of continue this theoretical thought, um, Helen, I might get you now to sort of now we're really narrowing in on some of the concepts the paper's about, uh, this idea of the simulacra. Um, Tell us about that. Okay, well, the simulacra, I guess, at its simplest form is just a sense that it's a copy of something. And where it becomes interesting is that we have to question where the original has gone you know what's it what's it copying has the original become so indistinguishable that the simulacrum has taken on taken on its own life at its at its simplest form of first order simulation it's just a it's a simple copy somebody pretending to be something could be considered first order and then moving on up a second order that sort of came to the fore in the when the industrial revolution through the mid 1800s when manufacturing techniques became much more sophisticated good copies could be made you know copies of things products that were kind of indistinguishable from from the original and then i guess we move on to the the third order which is much more relevant for us and simulation practice when what it the simulacrum is the sort of it's the product it is the simulation 
but the original thing or whatever we're supposedly copying, you can't really identify what that is. It isn't a physical thing that one could grasp. And this is going to come up, I think, further as we go through the examples from the paper. Sure. Uh, it might be useful um, even to, because I guess, Jerry, you were going to explain to us about one of the other things, like from the title about the uncanny valley, which is probably links these concepts a little bit. In essence, uh, it really describes our reaction, our human reaction, to the degree of human likeness in, in robots at that time. Uh, and with increasing human likeness of robots, we became more comfortable with them. But up to a point, there was a point where they maybe became too lifelike and our reaction became a little bit more uneasy, a little bit more unsettled, the dip, the valley. Um, and it's interesting, you said earlier, Vic, that sometimes theories can take a while to percolate through. And this actual concept from my reading in the literature, largely lay dormant for three, four decades until recent times where it's gained more interest and traction, um, particularly with the ad, uh, advancement in, in robotics. And I, I, I think we can hopefully make the leap into the world of simulation, particularly around uh, mannequin-based simulation. I mean, if we look over the many hundreds of years where mannequins have uh, helped us and train individuals, they were maybe very simplistic. Um, we look at the first uh, Rassocian, the mannequin, the Lacan de la Seine, the death mask of that, that poor unfortunate individual who still on many of our, our mannequins that we use today. But in recent times, we have uh, some very lifelike mannequins. Um, I am sure we, many of us have seen these. They really try to faithfully reproduce many of the physical uh, characteristics of, of human beings. And, and I, I, I would have to say that probably many people, when they first see these, ooh, the reactions, oh, this is this is strange. And maybe this is a sense of the uncanny valley. So in essence, I think uh, that this concept, it tries to bring out a focus about the interplay, as Helen says, between, you know, what is actual real and what is artificial? Is this fake or actually is it is it is it real? Yeah, and I think this illustrates... Uh, an important thing about what is real to you. And I've often seen a difference between, say, experienced practitioners who sometimes find that uh, distinction much greater than, say, our medical students who haven't yet built up their repertoire of cues about the subtleties of the way humans look when they're sick, uh, whereas the students might accept more just looking at vital signs and seeing a plastic mannequin. And so sometimes they can make the leap uh, that is required for uh, dealing with the simulation more easily. Yes, that's correct. And um, you're right, it's not the the image, the uh, the signals that we portray through a simulation, but it's how they are received and how that uh, sets in with their, their context, their experience. And, and I think that's absolutely right. This sort of, you know, what might appear real to others might not be to to other individuals. So you're right, that's kind of essence of some of the, the, the things that we were signaling uh, in, in our article. All right, well, that's probably a good cue to move into a little bit of practical. And uh, Jerry and Helen might like to sort of have a think about this, but I wanted to go into one of the first examples you give in the paper, which is about assessment and OSCEs. And I understand now, Helen, that that's been part of your PhD as well, how a perfect assessment would be possibly a second-order simulacra where you've got the exact replication of the challenges you would have in practice and your performance is judged that way. But what you, I think you're saying is that a lot of OSCEs that we actually see are moved into this third order where they now create this hyper-real 
uh, example of how we want our students to perform. And they end up basically performing rather than truly practicing. So maybe, Jerry, you can tell us about the example of that. And then maybe, Helen, you can take the broader step back and talk about these uh, third order hyper real situations. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if this would challenge some of your listeners, but, you know, in essence, you know, OSCEs are in a way a shape or form of, of simulation. Uh, we, we construct, we try to imitate what we think are slices of, of clinical life, but for the purposes of conferring uh, judgments. And actually, it's a high stakes form of simulation because these judgments can affect progression and certification. So it's really important that we get this right. And I, I suppose the important thing is the distinction between this world that we create in a in an OSCE venue in an OSCE setting. You know how much that mirrors the real clinic uh, clinical practice. The concern is that if students, um, when they're in OSCE, they perform more to the test, and how much would that performance transfer uh, into real into real uh, clinic clinical practice? And that's one of the the issues that we certainly. Uh, argue about in our in our research. Yes. Okay. So Helen, you um, obviously done a fair bit of work here. Tell us uh, any more on the problem, and maybe then you can tell us. Well, what do you do about that? It's one thing to be a critical researcher, but uh, what's your advice then to the poor people who are trying to create the exams for the students? Oh, absolutely! Don't give us the million dollar question straight away of the how to fix it. But if I if I may indulge in a little more of the the problematization. And just take you back, if I may, to why OSCEs as third order simulacrum or whatever you want to call them, why I originally became so interested on building on the work that Jenny and Jerry had been doing around OSCEs. And I think it might help make some sense of, of the problem in that I heard some medical students, I overheard some medical students talking about why they were avoiding clinical environments in the run-up to their OSCE exams. You know, these students, they didn't want to be on the wards, in clinics, in ED. They wanted to be with their friends, practicing, rehearsing routines of OSCEs. And it was a very distressing phrase to me that I heard one of them say, well, the patients don't say it like the SPs do. And I just went, oh my goodness, what, what are we doing? We are creating a generation of learners that are eschewing clinical environments and all the mess and complexity that we as practitioners would recognize because they are preparing in the only way that they they know how to perform well and score highly on simulated encounters in OSCE settings. And that really that bothered me, which I guess was the whole drive to to take more of a critical look at OSCEs. And you've mentioned the hyperreal. And I think that's really what OSCEs and these third order things, that's really what they're doing because the original which they aim to simulate, and I guess in our clinical OSCEs that would be clinical practice, it's not really distinguishable. You know, where is that original? If we're avoiding our learners going near the original, what are we doing? And yeah, there's just aspects that really trouble trouble us, or tr- certainly trouble me. You know, when you student walks into station, male, 
SP wearing a pair of plastic strap-on breasts. And the students wouldn't question this. They would just go into their routine of a breast examination and they, they almost wouldn't see that as unusual. They wouldn't question that. And, yeah, I think that's just... Well, not during the exam anyway. Oh, I bet yeah. they have a good laugh about it later. <laughs> maybe, maybe they do, but whether... We it is 2020 be, after all, you know. I know, <laughs> yeah, yeah not making, you know, if anyone wants to wear a strap on breasts, let them, you know, let them get on with it. But the fact that they just accept this as the normal way and the normal way that we should be assessing their clinical practice... I think we have to ask some questions about that. You're listening to Simulcast. Oh, well, I just wanted to draw Simulcast listeners back to one of the concepts that we've spoken about before, which is this idea of cultural compression and specifically how that relates to assessment. So assessment and OSCEs are this time when the values and beliefs that we transmit to learners are particularly strong and weigh down on them very heavily. Uh, And so this makes it even more problematic uh, when we are, you know, taking patients away from perhaps from the center of that, because then that becomes the lesson very heavily for for learners. And it's just a nice link, uh, I guess, when we're thinking about how do we understand and play with theory. There's all of these these different theories that we learn about that overlap and intersect. Uh, and that's when things get really exciting for uh, for people like Jenny and Helen and Jerry and I. Yeah, absolutely. And there's many different languages for that, but they're unintended consequences. Jerry, another thought? Yeah, and just, just reacting to that and I uh, picking up an Eve's comment that one of the one of the great things, one of the beauties of theory is that it brings to the surface things uh, you know, phenomena, aspects that may maybe never considered or or overlooked in the past. Um, and, and I think also with with Helen's comment that this is not criticism. This is critical. This is a, a having a you know a discussion that moves things forward in a positive way. Uh, and actually, you know, over time we are starting to see improvements within the OSCE uh, rather than having to go. Uh, down or shotgunning lots of questions in, in a tick box is actually to have some, you know, natural conversation, the natural ebbs and flow of conversation as we do have in the real world. Uh, but the biggest thing we got to consider uh, is that, you know, assessment, um, you know, drives learning. Well, actually, it is a way of uh, modifying behaviours and we got to align that to the, the real world. So we got to take this, this simulacrum and, and really not lose sense of the real world that we uh, those uh, particular individuals will will be working uh, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So this explains a few things to me, why simulated patients say to me, so are we doing sims today and where I can actually just be myself or is it like an OSCE where I can't give anything away? Uh, and also this, the phrase that, uh, Helen, you described, I've heard as well, registrars saying, I can't come to teaching, I have to prepare for exams. And it's that same kind of spine-tingling, oh, my goodness, what are we doing here? Uh, so Helen, before you get off the hook completely, um, what is the answer? Should we just resign ourselves to much more workplace-based assessment? Uh, Jerry said the OSCEs are getting better, but are they ever going to cross back onto the other side of the uncanny valley? Oh, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, you alluded to workplace-based assessment there. And I think certainly bringing some aspects of assessment into clinical environments, clinical workplaces, of course, that has a role. But I don't think... The OSCE or OSCEs, I don't like referring to them in 
the singular if possible, because recognize that they, there's a huge breadth of the way people um, people set up and use OSCEs in their educational practices. But I don't think the OSCEs dead or that OSCEs are dead. I think they will or they need to and ought to change and evolve perhaps getting away from those scripted encounters that we've become so used to in simulated practice. Why not embrace real patients in OSCEs um, or certainly more um, improvisation that SPs are often very confident and keen to get involved with? Like you say, the kind of training um training scenarios that SPs so love getting their teeth into, why can't we somehow embrace that within the um, what we see as so much more rigid of assessment? Because as we all know, patients are not scripts. They do not respond in scripted ways. And as examiners, it grates when we have to, to grade students and be driven by a checklist that we feel as, as clinicians is almost going against the grain, you know, rewarding patient, rewarding students who say, yes, I can see there are no scars and there are no da 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 when they haven't even looked. They're just conditioned to expect normality because they know they're examining an SP. And that SP might well have an incidental scar, but the students are just, they're rehearsing routines and not, mm. not even looking, you know, they're Performing. Performing, exactly. They're performing looking or performing hearing. You know, the the empathy, the yep, yeah, oh that must be really awful, must be really dreadful, in response to anything that a that an SP says. We it doesn't ring true, it doesn't ring authentic. And we know if they said that in a in an in a real clinical encounter, that the you know, the patient might not stand for that because it just it great. Yeah, it'd be awful. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the discordance is at the teacher and the learner level. And I think what you're saying is, and I'm going to look forward to the postmodern OSCEs. <laughs> um, but, but I'm going to move on now and talk about the educational process and how your uh, contentions and your critiques of uh, of simulation using theory might help us there. And Eve, I'm going to ask you because this concept of constructed realities and I know one of the things we've talked about including at uh, IMSH this year about stereotyping and it seems to me that's almost one of the examples here stereotype our colleagues to stereotype patients Um, is this an example of that do you think you know I certainly uh, I certainly think so I think uh, as we've talked a lot about uh, again with simulcast listeners that these moments where we do create these stereotypes and we do construct these realities uh, usually say more about us and our perception of the world uh, than they say about the people who we're impersonating uh, or stereotyping. Uh, and again, is just a moment for us to stop and think uh, about what that means. I guess the other thing I just wanted to sort of also turn our attention to is when we're talking about education. And as I was reading this, you didn't make mention of it in the paper, but thinking about the OSCE and then also thinking about the process of debriefing, which many people struggle to get good at. Um, and one of the reasons they struggle to get good at is it's kind of a fake conversation. 
And so we find ourselves in the debrief room having these conversations with learners about, oh, the leadership was fabulous and, you know, oh, I saw people do closed-loop communication. And we have this conversation that feels like we don't actually have in the clinical environment. Now, maybe we should be having it in the clinical environment, but it almost occurred to me that maybe our debriefing was a bit of a hyper-real conversation. Um, I'm happy to throw that open to anyone who wants to take it. I guess I can add in a, a piece there, Vic. I think one of the most interesting things that we did uh, during some of the work on the Gold Coast was actually take those debriefing conversations out of the debriefing room uh, and back into the workplace in uh, after action reviews. And for somebody like me who was learning about simulation and learning about debriefing, uh, actually bringing those conversations back to the real world uh, was extremely helpful uh, because all of a sudden I saw that this, this didn't actually have to be a different conversation with different goals. Uh, this was something that was going to be very real and helpful in my actual uh, place of work and in the clinical environment. Um, but I think that that's not something that necessarily everybody uh, experiences in their in their debriefing education. So actually taking it away from the hyper real and bringing it back to the real was something pretty powerful for me. Yeah, and that comes up in the paper under the practical implications heading, uh, and I think a call for us to be combining the workplace learning with the simulation-based learning. So the skills and thoughts that we go into our simulation debriefing should also go into our clinical event debriefing, and that's one way of connecting those things. Um, can I stick on that point then for a minute because I felt like this was an important part of the paper because I think what you make the point of is that we shouldn't really be pitting the workplace learning against the simulation uh, but rather seeing what each is suited to and in fact one may well prime the other. Uh, maybe Jenny did you want to make a comment or two on that one? Uh, yeah, I think uh, Eva's described that just beautifully there, you know, the idea that you take something and then you integrate it with your actual workplace learning. Um, and I guess that's what we'd ideally see. I think it is useful to remember that some of those business cases and agendas do take place within a neoliberal ideology. And a lot of it is about money and about efficiency and standardization, those discourses that we're living with all the time. And I think as, as educators and clinicians, uh, it kind of behoves us to realize that nothing is apolitical. Um, so there's like, I, I don't know if you've heard a famous quote from Irish poet Seamus Heaney, and he says, there's no such thing as innocent bystanding. Um, and I guess I, I really like that because that speaks to me about thinking critically about the work that we're engaged in, um, not just in our own clinical practice, but also in, in education. So there's no doubt in my mind that simulation is such an exciting um, and forward looking uh, technology and, and way of educating. Um, does that mean that it's going to cover all bases and let us throw everything out that's come before? I don't think so. I think it's about combining them. Um, and I think I would have a really significant concern um, about uh, about losing that interaction with patients and that, and that relationship um, and that one-on-one. -on -one. And, and that's the real thing about um, keeping things real, literally keeping it real, not keeping it hyper real. So yes, we, we see this often in the our educational arenas where we compare one modality of education to another from online to uh, workplace uh, learning to uh, simulation. And, uh, I, and I think this can 
cause, uh, unfortunately, un, unnecessary tension. Um, I, I, and I suppose the essence of our paper is is not to start with the tech or the tool. It's actually to start what is philosophically wh- where are we starting from? Uh, you know, wh- who are we serving? What is the reality that we want to? What's the educational purpose? And then best aligning what's the best modality uh, that can help us achieve our educational pursuits. Um, and and for, for us, learning is a continuum, it's constructed, uh, it's not binary, um, and often it is best in a blended approach. Uh, so I, I think this uh, narrative of comparing one to other, I, I, I think that actually doesn't benefit us all in a, in a bigger picture uh, of, of education. You're listening to Simulcast. Eve, one of the ways I got to know about this was you sent me a link to this article and you talked about us uh, hopefully trying to aspire to postmodern simulation. Do you want to connect some of these dots for us here and say what do you mean by that and uh, how is simulation at its best where it's not hyper-real but actually hitting the mark? Sure. So, you know, postmodernism really is this understanding, this fundamental uh, kind of footing that there is not necessarily a single truth uh, and that we need to explore uh, multiple realities uh, to to really understand the world, that there's, there's not a single right answer. So in my mind, a postmodern simulation would be a program that uh, allows learners and educators to explore multiple realities um, that offers, in the words of uh, these wonderful authors, authenticity in uncertainty and complexity that are intertwined and messy uh, in real-world environments and systems. That's directly from the paper. Uh, What that allows both learners and educators and participants to do is work together to construct a new and shared and perhaps better reality. Um, and I, I think there are different ways to do that at, at different levels, um, but can be something that we think about in, in any activity that we design and that we create, uh, recognizing that this is going to be messy and that's, that's actually okay. Yeah, so if I might think about that from my point of view, let's say um, this week I was doing a uh, simulation up with the with a variety of teams looking at postpartum hemorrhage in the operating theatre. And I guess the traditional way of approaching this is to say there is a right way to do it and uh, simulation is training you to get good at the right way of doing it. Whereas what you're saying is, in fact, probably we need to, to use a slightly overused term, co-create the right way of doing it with the people who are there and that it's a bit more exploratory than truly just trying to norm it to an expected behaviour. Is that getting close to what you mean? Yeah, I'd say that that, uh, that is pretty accurate. Uh, and it can be a bit uncomfortable because a lot of the way that simulation has been developed and where it comes from is through discourses of, of standardization and making everything the same. So you know, out of the airline industry, a lot of this was about doing something exactly the same way every time. And that may have a place in, in certain aspects of uh, simulation, perhaps some of the procedural aspects. Um, but when we are talking about the way that we behave in groups and the way that we interact with patients, um, ignoring uh, ignoring the the messiness, uh, I think, is where we start to find ourselves 
in this uh, hyper real uh, and third order uh, simulacra. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say we've had the same experience with some of our uh, COVID preparation simulations that this really was a time for um, taking what were written down as very good uh, work as imagined kind of procedures and actually exploring them with frontline clinicians and saying, but really, how is this going to work with you? Uh, And I think in the paper, it's not a perfect match, but I think the paragraphs in there about attention to the socio-cultural context, uh, which is a big word for what you're saying is messiness. Um, just, I, I just have a little comment there, and I think you just hit it on the head, really, when you say about the COVID preparations, because here we are, we've been hit with something completely out of the blue, um, and really no amount of what we knew before can prepare us for how we are working now, and a lot of that is on the hoof. And uh, I think there's just a lot of um, learning through working that no amount of this is the right way of doing things um, is is going to help with. And um, particularly when I read about our colleagues in ICU and in anesthetics who are coming up with this new these new ideas, you know, like let's let's nurse this patient prone on their tummy and look, that improves their saturations massively. Uh, it's like let's just try things, you know. Um, so that I you know just really underlines for me the messiness of real life. Um, so it's about how how we can integrate that while not losing sight of the fact that practice and guidelines and protocols which are being carefully devised are important for patient safety. Yeah, thinking about simulation as an experiment rather than uh, simulation as a uh, chance to test people. Okay, so I'm going to sort of start wrapping up here and then I'm going to ask uh, each of our authors for their take-home points. Um, But I think what I've learned through reading this and through talking with you today, this concept of realism is a pretty tricky concept. There's pluses and minuses to it, uh, as you say, right at the outset. Theory is actually quite handy, as it turns out, uh, particularly if you apply it in the right context. And uh, I think having the terminology helps us understand some things that might be gut feels, um, but we can now bring it out to the surface. I think taking the example of the OSCE is useful because that's possibly where we see some of this um, extreme hyperrealism. But I think also we've explored a little bit about uh, what makes for authentic simulation and how can we capture some of the messiness of clinical practice in a way that's useful both in the simulation and in the conversations that we have afterwards. Uh, so I might ask you each in turn, uh, if you're thinking about something you'd like our listeners to take away and think about from this, uh, not what to think, but what to think about, uh, what would you say, Jenny? Okay, well, I guess for um, educators who are involved in simulation, I think the big thing is to try and keep it real, you know, always connecting um, with, with uh, you know, inverted commas, real life as well. Uh, as the simulation world. And a secondary outcome would be not to be too terrified of a little bit of theory um, because it can can be very practical if you can find your way past the jargon. Um, and, and, you know, really emphasises that we always say, which is know what it is you're trying to achieve. Uh, Helen, what would your reflections on this be? I guess for me it would be a plea to all of us, whether it be in our sim education endeavours or indeed in our research to embrace a bit of criticality and genuine reflexivity in what we do. And yeah, not criticality in criticising everything, criticality in questioning those assumptions, questioning the way we are doing things, the status quo, and just thinking thinking about why and what we're doing and can we do it better? That would be my plea. 
Yeah, and you don't. I think you would be the first to say, although you have done one, um, you don't have to do a PhD to have that. You just need to develop a bit of a habit and maybe absolutely. do some reading. Would that be fair? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Do not want to turn everybody into um, PhD trained critical researchers. That's not at all. But all of us in, in whatever we're doing, be it the the occasional sim or, um, you know, leading programs of in various educational settings, we can all question the status quo and question the assumptions of how and why we're doing things. Yeah, absolutely. And not just in simulation either. So, Jerry, you um, you continuously put all sorts of interesting uh, ideas in front of us in your journal articles and with the people that you're supervising and working with uh, over at Queen's University in Belfast. Uh, what reflections would you have on this paper, conversations and thoughts for our listeners? Often we use the friend, criti- yeah, the term critical friends, and I think it's important that we do, you know, challenge the norm uh, in the pursuit of improving our endeavours, uh, having the benefits from our endeavours and challenging uh, the orthodoxy from from time to time. And the technology that we use has really benefited our field and will continue for, for many years. But but I suppose, you know, it's not just starting with the tech, this, this layer of the tech. We all love gadgets and and seeing how they work. But actually, let's start with, you know, what is what are we trying to achieve? What is the educational purpose? And do the, does this align to the world, the real uh, authentic clinical experience that our learners will, will work in? Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's interesting from, from a, again, from a family, we're all, we're all physicians, we're all doctors, um, uh, on this cast and, you know, this podcast, and we know that, you know, d- does this really reflect our, or or the, the places that we work? Um, I, we, we often involve in many aspects of our research, uh, you know, members of the public, people, carers. Um, but from my reading, maybe this has not been a, a big tradition in simulation. So it's really given voice to those, uh, that matters. Um, uh, embrace complexity, uh, welcome messiness and unpredictability, because I think these are important attributes that we need to ensure that we help develop our learners uh, to be able to manage their creative thinking, their agile thinking, because the real world isn't linear. It's nothing unpredictable. Uh, and if we fail to uh, advance our students, our learners' ability to manage real world complexity, then I think we're, we're failing them, and particularly the patients that they serve. So I think, uh, and again, just thinking back to one of Eve's comments, I do get a sense in the literature that there is probably a turn in simulation now, this, I don't know if we're going to call this the postmodern turn, uh, but this idea of really starting to firmly root uh, in, in the reality of clinical practice and how we really can align through all our endeavours to make sure that simulation uh, is, is, remains an important uh, modality uh, for for many years to to come, mm, yes, definitely. Um, and your talk about the technology somehow we didn't even bring up virtual reality, but that sounds like it'll be another whole show. Uh, all right, finally, um, Eve, having read the paper, having listened to this, what are you going to do differently in your simulation practice now? Probably uh, have some very open and honest conversations with the different people that I'm coordinating. Uh, and planning simulations with. Uh, I think this paper has given me some words and some concepts to start discussions. Uh, I think Vic, you and I earlier this year had a little bit of a conversation about uh, some discomfort that I was having 
uh, around uh, some simulations that I was involved with. And I was, I was actually struggling to put it straight in my own mind, what was bothering me. And it wasn't until I read this paper uh, that it really crystallized uh, for me that I, I felt like we were in this hyper real uh, state that was actually kind of potentially harmful. Uh, and so this this paper has given me some words that I can use to discuss with my colleagues when I find that we are drifting into a place that uh, that maybe is not uh, embracing some of the complexity uh, and authenticity that uh, that Jerry was just speaking about. So uh, I think it's going to empower me to maybe have some uh, some tough conversations and bring a critical lens to uh, the simulation programs that I'm involved in. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up there, Simulcast listeners. So just a reminder, this is uh, Jenny Johnson et al. uh, Into the Uncanny Valley, Simulation versus Simulacrum, this month's medical education. And I will put uh, the details of that and a link on the Simulcast website where you can find that. So go on to www.simulationpodcast.com where you'll find this. Plus, of course, if you're listening on iTunes, uh, you can go to the website to get those extra bits of information. So thank you all again for your time. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Vic and Eve. Fantastic. It's Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. You're listening to Simulcast. 